Well, it is good for me to be able to be here with you and uh, to spend these minutes that we have. Now, as he said, we were talking about uh, this series that you've been involved in, and uh, I was asked if I would come here and talk a little bit more about the book of Chronicles. Um, whether you know it or not, your pastor has asked me to do a very difficult job. Uh, trying to stir up interest in Chronicles is not the easiest thing in the world. Chronicles, in my view, is one of the best kept secrets in the Bible for a number of reasons. Um, several years ago, the magazine Christianity Today did a they, they often sponsor uh, Read the Bible Through in a Year. Are you familiar with the Bibles that are created to be read through? You read a certain number of chapters every day, and when you do that faithfully for 365 days, you've read the whole Bible. You're familiar with that. And Christianity Today is one of the organizations that has sponsored this. And over the years, they've tried to track. And so about 10, 15 years ago, I'm not exactly sure, uh, they decided, they had a, they had a pretty good uh, classification of people. They knew email addresses of people who had committed to read through the Bible in a year. So as they were coming near to the end of that year, they decided to poll all of the people whose names they had in their system to find out how successful people had been with their intention of reading through the Bible in one year. And so they got certain statistics. Then they came back to those people who, who, who did not succeed. Somewhere along the way in the year, they fell through the, their, their Bible. Their plan was, uh, they were interested in this, they wanted to do this, but along the way, things fell by the wayside and they did not succeed. And Christianity Today wanted to know, when in the calendar year did you fall by the wayside? And they found that there were two times, one at the very end of January and one at the very beginning of May. As it turned out, if people were reading through the, through, uh, on their daily uh, assignments, at the end of January, they were reading in the book of Leviticus. That's not the most um, encouraging sort of stuff to read. And if, and if they were reading at the very beginning of May, they were reading in Chronicles. And Chronicles killed many good intentions of reading through the Bible. I think there are three reasons why Chronicles is not viewed positively and is not read regularly uh, by Christians. And it's kind of like in baseball, three strikes and you're out. There are three reasons. Number one, if you are familiar with the books at all, you know that when you open to the book of Chronicles, you spend 12, the first 12 chapters, well, 11 and a half chapters, you find nothing but genealogies. Now, there are genealogies of other places in the Bible. You have the genealogy of Noah in, in uh, chapter 10. You have the genealogy of Abraham in chapter 11. You have the genealogy of Moses in Exodus chapter 4, and so forth and so on. But in the genealogy of either Noah or Abraham, you have a grand total of 10 names. 
A is the father of B, B is the father of C, and so forth and so on. And with Moses, you have a grand total of only four names. A is the father of B and C and so forth. When you open up the Chronicles, you have over 500 consecutive verses that include almost 2,000 personal names. Nothing but genealogies. And let's face it, reading genealogies for most of us in the West in the 21st century, that is about as edifying as going to have a tooth extraction. And if we were writing history today, we pro if we were writing, let's say, the history of America, chances are we would not begin with the genealogy of George Washington or the genealogy of uh, Jefferson or the genealogy of Lincoln because that's not the way we write history and so we cannot, uh, we cannot connect with that and it causes us to close our Bibles and stop reading. And yet on the other hand, if you think about it for a moment, when the gospel writers introduced to us the person and ministry of Jesus Christ and include his birth, two of them give to us what concerning Jesus? The genealogy of Jesus. So we have to understand that genealogy in biblical times and genealogy, at least in Western America today, have two different values and two different meanings. Um, some years ago, I was doing work in the country of Jordan, and I was working with the princess of Jordan, in other words, the daughter of the king, uh, King Hussein's daughter. She's uh, not, she's the stepsister to the guy who is the present king of Jordan. But, but, but I was working with her when her father was still alive and so forth and so on. But the story I'm going to tell you is still the same today as it would be then. I wanted to know more about that family. I wanted to know more about her. I wanted to know more about uh, Jordan and, and their rule and so forth. She proceeded to start to tell me the story of her father and of what the country of Jordan is by reciting most of the genealogy between Muhammad and her father. Her father is a direct biological, the only Middle Eastern country where you have a direct biological descendant of Muhammad. 21 he was 20 generations, so the guy who is the present king of uh, Jordan is 21 generations removed from Muhammad. She proceeded to tell me her story by beginning with Muhammad and working through generations. In other words, for her, genealogy was not just a way of demonstrating that she's a blue blood. In other words, some people think, well, the reason why you have Jesus' genealogy there in Matthew and uh, Luke is that uh, the gospel writers are interested in having us know that Jesus is the legitimate son of God. He's not just some illegitimate uh, person who's coming along the way. This is, there's legitimacy as the result. And this woman, in effect, was telling me that, yes, there is legitimacy, but there is profoundly more because our story, she would say to me, our story is tied up and cannot be divorced from our genealogical roots. Yes, genealogy is very much at the core and the center of this book, and we have to understand why. But I'll come to that in a little bit. Anyhow, let's strike one. Let's strike one 
for why people close their Bibles when they get the Chronicles. The second strike, if I could call it that, is that it's a bloody book. And today, after all, uh, we don't want anything to do with blood and, 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 uh, and antagonism and, uh, and, and warfare and the like. And we see it there, and so it turns our stomach, and we just want to move on to a place that makes us feel better, makes us uh, somehow associate more in our own personal life with the Lord and so forth. But I have to tell you that from the beginning of the time contained in the book of Chronicles until the end of the time contained in the book of Chronicles is over 500 years' time. That's more than twice the amount of time that the American Republic has been in existence. Now consider how bloody our history has been over these last 250 years. That in itself shouldn't turn us away from our history, but in part it defines our history. What I'm saying is, I don't think we should have strike two. Yes, there is blood, there are, there are things that uh, can turn our stomachs. In some cases, there are things in there that are designed to make us turn our stomachs. Strike two. And strike three. Strike three, you're out in baseball. Strike three, you're out in Chronicles. It's a repeated story. For pity's sakes, how often do I have to read this stuff? It's enough for me to have to read it in Samuel or Kings or Psalms, or Isaiah. Uh, why must I then keep reading and read the same stuff? Well, I could say repetition aids learning, but that's not what I'm about. This third strike that is actually the strike that makes us have to leave the plate and be out is the strike that I want to spend a lot of time on today. This is one of the reasons why Chronicles is so important in the theology of the Bible. Let me talk about that for just a little bit. We have the same thing, if you think about it, stories being told more than once, don't we? With the Synoptic Gospels. You have a story of the life of Jesus told in, Matthew, in, Gospel, in Matthew's Gospel, in Mark's gospel, in Luke's gospel, and in John's gospel. Yes? You're with me on that? The very fact that we read it repetitiously shouldn't turn us off. These were four men, all of whom were involved in the early church, and they each were an eyewitness to events that took place, and they were keen, in fact, they were inspired to tell their story. Now, it's a similar story, but it's not an identical story, right? There are certain parts of the story that you, read, that you learn when you read Matthew that you don't read when you read Luke and so forth. There are eyewitness accounts, just like an eye, if there would be an accident out here uh, at the end of church, and there are three or four people walking up and down the street, and they're all eyewitnesses to this event, but they won't necessarily tell the same story because they don't have the same perspective. It's not that one is right and one is wrong, it's just that they're not all identical. Each is telling the story as they know it. Yes? You're, you're with me on that? We call those Gospels the synoptic Gospels. We, 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 we know what it 
means to have a synopsis, a summary. And basically, they're each telling a story in their own way, but it's a facet of the same story, yes? Now, they truly were synoptic. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all lived at exactly the same time. They're all witnesses. Two of the four were Jesus' disciples. The other two of the four traveled with the Apostle Paul. Between the time Mark wrote the first gospel and John wrote the fourth gospel is a grand total of about 30 years. These guys knew each other, many, uh, uh, not, with, uh, not with Luke, but with many of the others. They were either in Jerusalem or they were traveling with Jerusalem. Uh, they were traveling uh, with Jesus. They were essentially contemporaries, yes? They lived at the same time. They're telling the same story. They truly are synoptic. When you open the book of Chronicles and you find narrative, as we found in the second scripture reading we had this morning, or you find poetry, as we found in the first scripture reading that you had this morning, in both cases, these are texts out of Chronicles that can be found. The first one can be found also in Psalms. The second one can be found also in 2 Samuel. But they are nowhere near to being contemporary. Between the time David lived and a writer wrote about, Dan, uh, wrote about uh, David in the book of uh, First and Second Samuel. And when the book of Chronicles is written, is a change of time of about 500 years, depending on, on, depending on the time involved, it could be as much as 700 years. It is a vast period of time. This is not synoptic literature. That would be, it would be kind of like this. What if we sat down today and we wrote the story of Christopher Columbus and we tried to tell his story, but we're doing so 500 years later? Or what if we, um, we pretended to be Martin Luther and we're going to nail our 95 theses to that door? Imagine how our story would be different from that story. We're not contemporaries with Luther. We're not contemporaries uh, with Columbus. We live hundreds of years later. We live in a different culture. We live in a different time. We have a different reality, and yet we would be writing that same story. That is what we're dealing with in the book of Chronicles. It is at least 500 years between when the books of Samuel and Kings were written and when Chronicles was written. And furthermore, we don't, we don't know this, but I'm about to inform us of this. Chronicles, the books of Chronicles happen to occur in our Bibles, in our English Bibles, right after the book of Kings. That's part of the problem. You just get done with Kings, and now you start reading in Chronicles, and you're reading the same thing you read in Kings, so you think. Chronicles is nowhere near kings in the Hebrew Bible. As a matter of fact, the books of Chronicles 
are at the tail end. The very last writing in the Hebrew Old Testament is found in Chronicles. When you get done with Chronicles, the next syllable of Scripture comes from the Gospels. Precisely because of some of those genealogies, we're able to figure out that Chronicles could not have been written before about 325, maybe even 300 B.C. It was written at a time when Alexander the Great had come to Jerusalem and had changed the whole, the whole playing board of how people were going to live. The Greek language was imposed. A whole new culture was imposed. And it was imposed forcefully. And it was so overpowering and so forceful that the culture of the Old Testament was in dire danger of being lost. Lost. Obliterated. And it is precisely at this time that people in Jerusalem decide that they have to change, they have to have their Bible that has always been in the Hebrew language, they have to have it translated into the Greek language because after all, that's the only language that people are now speaking. The book of Chronicles has more theology than most books of the Old Testament. And the reason it does is because it has the advantage of perspective of time. So when the person who wrote Chronicles, let's call him the chronicler, when the chronicler sits down and repeats a story that is found in Psalms about the day when David was bringing the ark into Jerusalem, and that is, by the way, the story of the first scripture reading you had this morning. If you go back to 2 Samuel in other words, the second scripture reading ahead was 2 Samuel 7, but if you go back to 2 Samuel chapters 5 and 6, you'll find that that's the context in which the psalm is written that is then referenced in your first scripture reading in Chronicles today. He's making reference to a series of events in which David brought the ark. It's like the Washington Monument. And he brought the Washington Monument to Washington. And for the first time in the history of Israel, its political capital and its religious capital were merged and brought together. It's the, and for now, uh, healthy adult uh, uh, people are going to be coming to Jerusalem three times a year to, to bring their sacrifices. You know, the, the times when people in the Old Testament had to go to Jerusalem. That is going to begin for the first time right now. Jerusalem is captured. It's an Israelite city. David brings the ark to Jerusalem, and that's our story. But what I'm saying is, the chronicler who's sitting there at 300 BC and is rehearsing an event that happened 700 years before that is not a mere historian. In fact, he's hardly a historian. I would argue he's a theologian. He has the advantage of more time than there has been since Luther and us to reflect on that earlier historical moment and he realizes that God has more things in store for Israel.
Yes, what David did on that occasion by bringing the ark to Jerusalem and merging the religious and the cap and making it the city of God and the city of David and all of those good things. Yes, that did happen. But that's now a long time ago. And the chronicler is going to interpret these things in light of the world as it exists at that point in time. Now, um, I, I'd like to uh, spend a little bit of time illustrating that, if I may. <clears throat> I said that this was almost 12, 11, 11 and a half chapters of continuous uh, you've got to be a very enthusiastic uh, believer to keep reading through 500 verses of genealogy that give you almost 2,000 words. But if you do, and you come to the end, you see that it started with Adam, and it ends with David. When you get to David, bingo, no more, gener no more genealogy. It stops with David, and now, finally, it tells us what David did. He was made king of all Israel. He captured the city of Jerusalem. He brought the ark to Jerusalem. And he wants to build his temple in Jerusalem. David is a critical player in this theology. And I want to suggest to you that, remember, this is the last, this is the last glimmer of revelation that is found in our Bibles, chronologically speaking before the Gospel of Matthew. That genealogy ends with David. David's 500 years, he's been dead for 500 years. The chronicler is obviously not trying to give us a comprehensive genealogy from the beginning of time to when he was sitting there in Jerusalem at 300 B.C. He stops it at David's, 700 years before that. <clears throat> and then he tells us these important things about David. I would suggest to you, I would strongly suggest to you that this is the reason why you find the character, the person, the personality, the name of David front and center in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. David's at the beginning, David's at the middle, and David's at the end. You open up to Matthew chapter 1 that says Jesus Christ, a son of David. Well, he's not a biological son of David. But Matthew begins with David because that's where the story begins in Chronicles. And then David's in the middle. Notice you start through and finally you get to David and notice it says David the king. Abraham's in that genealogy. It doesn't say Abraham the man of God. It doesn't say Abraham the patriarch. All it says is Abraham. After David comes Solomon. It just says Solomon. It doesn't say Solomon the king. Solomon, the good guy, whoever. Hezekiah, one of, the, one of the great heroes of the Old Testament, is in that genealogy. But when, the, when Matthew gets to Hezekiah, it doesn't say Hezekiah, the good guy. Hezekiah, the reformer. It just says Hezekiah. But with David, uniquely, Matthew says, David, the king. So David, Jesus is the son of David. David the king, and then you get to the tail end. So David's at the beginning of the genealogy, David's in the middle, and then at the end of the genealogy of Matthew, David is there in a different kind of way. When you read in verse 17 of Matthew 1, 
Matthew concludes by saying, and so there are 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the, to the captivity, and 14 generations from the captivity until Jesus. It's a three, three times in verse 17 uh, of Matthew 1, Matthew uses the word 14. Now, all we have to do is go back into the Old Testament and start through, and we realize there are not literally 14 generations between Abraham and David. More than that. There are not literally 14 generations between David and the captivity. More than that, actually. There are not literally 14 generations between the captivity and Jesus. In fact, there are not even 14 in the genealogy of Matthew 1. What was, did, did Matthew leave his calculator at home that day? Did he not get the lesson? Was he bad in math? After all, he, was, he shouldn't have been too bad in math. After all, remember, he was a tax collector. My mother was a tax collector. I can tell you, she needed two things to be elected tax collector. One, she had to be a member of the correct political party of my township. And two, she had to be very good with numbers. No, Matthew, it's not that Matthew left his calculator at home that day or that he wasn't good with math. No, he's talking about something other than just mere history. In the language that he was writing, the Hebrew language is what we call an alphanumeric language, meaning that every letter of the alphabet has a a verbal value, and it also has a numerical value. So if I were to put this into English, I'm, I'm now going to try to illustrate this in English for a little bit. So uh, English, of course, is not an alphanumeric language, but if it were, then the letter A, if it had a verbal value, that would be the value of A. But since it's the first letter of the alphabet, it would have a numerical value of 1. B, 2. C, 3. You understand how that would go. Well, Hebrew actually is an alphanumeric language. And each letter of the alphabet has both values. Well, lo and behold, if you take the Hebrew letters that comprise the word for David, begins and ends with a D. That's the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, so that's four plus four. In the middle, you have the V. Vowels don't count. Uh, they are not... They were added by people later. So, like if you go to Jerusalem today and you pick up the Jerusalem Times, you're not going to find vowels in there. You just found, find consonants. The only time you might find a stray vowel in there is that if you don't add a vowel, then it could be this, but it could be this. And the guy wants to make sure you know what it is, so he adds a vowel. But for the most part, you don't. So knock out the A and the I, that leaves you with the W, and in the Hebrew alphabet, that has a numerical value, that's the sixth, S-I-X-T-H letter. So add four plus six plus four. You understand where I'm going with this? So David is present at the beginning of the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus, the son of David. He's present in the middle of the genealogy of Jesus, David the king, and he's present at the end of the genealogy, and so there are 14, 14, 14. It's a rehearsing of the name David. 
Is it any wonder that in the early sermons that we read in the book of Acts, right from the day of Pentecost and on, as they are recorded by writers in the New Testament, notice a prominence of the word, I'm sorry, a prominence of the name David. Sometimes his name is recited. Sometimes his words are recited, quoted. Sometimes it's both. I want you to see that in a large contributing measure, the shape of the genealogy as presented in Matthew and presented in those early sermons is in no small consequence a result of the theology that they are being fed right from the very last syllable of the Old Testament, i.e. Chronicles. Now, uh, let, me, let me go to these two texts and spend a uh, little bit of time that I have left. In the, in the first of these texts, the one that, that was read to us first today from uh, 1 Chronicles 16 is related to uh, two Psalms, Psalm uh, 96 and Psalm 105. You'll, f- you'll find part of chapter 16 of, of uh, uh, Chronicles. You'll find part of that in one psalm, part of that in another psalm, and then you'll find the historical context for that in 2 Samuel chapter 6. This is a celebration. This is a grand service of praise that Israel went through when they were bringing no less than the ark of God into the city of Jerusalem. So it is a day of celebration. It is a day of praise. Just notice how much praise there is there. It would also be useful to, re- to, to turn to those psalms and to see what is not included as well as what is included. For example, in Psalm 106, um, you, you have the first verse of that psalm and then it skips about 40 verses. Because in between, from about verses 3 through about 38, in the psalm, it's talking about various times in the past when Israel has engaged in sin. Uh, They were sinned in the the golden calf, and they sinned at at Mount Sinai, and they sinned at various places. in, in in, uh, in, In psalms, the psalm has a context of Israel repeatedly falling into the error of sin. All of that's omitted because the context the chronicler wants is look what God is doing, not what people have not done. Look at what God is. And so it is a cause of celebration and praise. I wish I had time to read to you the verbs that are used in association with this grand celebration. It is, it, is, it is so terrific because, again, it feeds into the New Testament. Words like this, these are verbs that you can read in this narrative. Sing, seek, remember, humble, declare, confess, repent, petition, affirm, glorify. Think of that. I'm going to read that list again. Notice the character and shape of worship 
Notice it's multiform. Some of these verbs are going to affect people's minds, their heads. Some of these verbs are going to affect people's hearts. They are sing, seek, remember, humble, declare, confess, repent, petition, affirm, glorify. In the 21st century, all of us need to guard against making worship too monolithic and losing a lot of the texture and variety of that. As if in some circles, I'm not saying here, in fact, I haven't observed that here, but in some circles, it is as if worship becomes a pure synonym of music. This is not to say that music is not part of worship, but when you think about those verbs, sing was a verb, but it was only one of ten. In fact, let me suggest for you an exercise. I'm sure it's an exercise that none of you have ever heard before. <clears throat> one, of the, one of the aspects of worship of the Lord that helps me at least is that I might understand why it is that I'm worshiping in the first place. Why am I worshiping? Am I worshiping because it's 10 o'clock and it's Sunday morning? Why, why do I worship God? Sometimes the answers today can be a little bit thin, if I could put it that way. Here's an exercise I invite you to follow. Get your Bible and get a highlighter or an underlined pen or however you want to do it, and you open up the entire book of worship in the Old Testament, the book of Psalms, and you will be able to go to the beginning of, every, uh, uh, at the beginning of a line in almost all of your versions, you'll find the word for, F-O-R. Just highlight every four. Now, I'm just talking about the word for when it occurs at the beginning of a line because that word for tells you why you should worship the Lord. Let us honor the Lord because or for He has done this or that or the other. Do it. Do it as a couple. Do it as a family. This is something that your kids could do. All you're doing is using a highlighter and you're highlighting the word for. Do it as a small group. It's a great exercise to do it together. Do it as a church. If you, if you do that for the book of Psalms, you'll find when you get done, you've got over 500 little yellow highlighted things. Because over 500 times in the book of Psalms, the book of Psalms tells us that we should praise the Lord, and then it tells us why, what for. And then we should get together and compare notes and say, why is it that these people are praising the Lord? And you'll find that the reasons are abundant and, and uh, variant, and it provides a richness and a variety of worship. It's a wonderful way of getting monotony and predictability out of worship. A fresh breath of air, a breath, a breath of fresh air to realize, oh my goodness, look at all these reasons these people are giving me to praise the Lord. Well, I, I must conclude uh, with a good, I think a good illustration of 
what the chronicler has done with other material that points us forward to Jesus. The, the chronicler has the Old Testament very much in his rearview mirror. Very much in his rearview mirror. He is writing at 300 B.C. The next syllable of Revelation is going to come from, from the gospel writers, and he is already looking in that direction. Let me take something like, no less than, this uh, event in 2 Samuel 7 that is recorded in your First Chronicles 17 text. This is where David says, look, I've captured Jerusalem. I'm now king of all Israel. Uh, I brought the ark to Jerusalem. I want to make this permanent. I want to build for God a temple. And the Lord says in this narrative, no, I'm not going to let you build a temple for me. I'm not going to let you build a house for me, but I'll tell you what, David, I'm going to build a house for you. And then he explains what is going to happen. Now, if you had two texts, if you had your Bible open at two different places, you could compare how the, 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 the covenant that God makes with David, how that covenant is modified and changed and adapted in Chronicles in remarkable ways. Uh, for example, in one of the, in, in, uh, in verses 11 and 14, it talks about the word kingdom. I'm going to give to you a kingdom. Just like in Samuel, God had said to David, I'm going to give to you a kingdom. Lo and behold, it's the same English word, K-I-N-G-D-O-M, but it's not the same word. When Chronicles is writing about kingdom, when, when Samuel is writing about kingdom, Samuel is talking, using a word that refers to the territory, so to speak, the geography, the realm. It's a realm. It's a, it's a place that's here on earth where you can rule over. The word that the chronicler uses, translated kingdom, refers to authority. It's a, the accentuation is away from the physical and the geographical and the historical, and it's on to someone who has kingship. Look, uh, um, uh, when, if you look at verse 11, and you'll be able to compare that with the second Samuel verse, notice a significant difference there. God says to David, when you go to be with your fathers, when you die, I'm going to raise up someone, and, and Samuel says, who is from your own loins, if I could translate it literally. What it means, I mean, that's euphemism, meaning whom you will physically procreate. In other words, in Samuel, God is promising David that there will be a Solomon. Yes? Fast forward to that same text in Chronicles, and Chronicles doesn't say whom you will procreate. It says, who will be from among your sons? The accentuation in Chronicles is not on Solomon. It's not on the historical. It's not on the rearview mirror. It's talking about a son of David who is an ideal son of David. There is what we call a curse clause back there. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and the stripes of the children of men. You notice in Chronicles, the entire curse clause has been omitted. It's been omitted because the chronicler doesn't have Solomon in mind. Yes, Solomon did live and Solomon did sin. But the son that I have in mind is a perfect son of David 
And since he will not ever sin, there is no need for there even to be a curse clause. The curse clause is superfluous. It's omitted. The chronicler doesn't have the back mirror, the rearview mirror in mind. And then you'll notice towards the end of that narrative, uh, over here it's talking about in his kingdom, in his rule, and this, and it becomes over here my kingdom, that is God's kingdom, my kingdom, my dynasty, my house, my rule. In other words, the chronicler is looking forward, not backwards. One of the best anticipations of what shall go on in the birth and life of Jesus is previewed in the book of Chronicles. And with this I will conclude. It's interesting, you brought up that verse in 2 Chronicles 7, 14. Uh, supposed to be, a, I don't know, kind of a classic verse. And probably it is. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways... I will hear, and so forth. I will, I will hear their land, and blah, blah, blah. You know how that goes. All right, as soon as you're done with David, you go to Solomon, and then you go to all the various kings. Notice with how many of those kings who are assessed pretty negatively in Samuel and Kings, but in Chronicles they are said to Seek God's face, repent, confess. In other words, the chronicler is looking at what had been sinful people, but also seeing how those people, in some cases, in many cases, had repented of their sin, had confessed their sin, humbled themselves. That's another, you'll find the, the word humble. He humbled himself before the Lord. Uh, no less than Manasseh, probably the most wicked guy in in the book of Kings, he, Chronicle says, he humbled himself and God restored him in the prayer of Manasseh. Okay, I had my shot. I'm trying to ignite a spark. I hope that at least one of you says, you know what? There ain't three strikes here. There are three good reasons why I need to read and study the book of Chronicles. It will be a joyride. It won't be easy. It won't be short. It won't be simple. But it comes with great, great dividends. You will not be disappointed. You have the opportunity in Chronicles uniquely to anticipate what will go on in the Gospels and in the epistles of the New Testament. I pray, dear Lord, that you would take what is chaff and just burn it away, blow it away, and take what I have spoken that is your truth and burn it within and apply it accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen.